Well, Happy New Year, everyone. And with a new year, a new decade, I thought I would teach you a new word. Uh, the, the word is wabi-sabi, and I'd like to teach you something about the wabi-sabi of God this morning. Uh, I first heard the, the word, actually there are two words, set side by side, but always used together. Uh, and I first heard them uh, when I was in a Japanese museum. I had come to a particular uh, part of the exhibit, it was a room, and I looked around the room and it just looked old and kind of plain and nothing particularly luxurious or impressive or interesting, and I was ready to move on. Uh, but I was with a, uh, a middle-aged Japanese couple, uh, some, some neighbors of mine, and as I was ready to go thinking, boy, there's nothing to see here, I looked over it, and they were transfixed. And they sighed, and they said, ah, wabi-sabi. And I had no idea what they were talking about. I, I looked up the two terms, and it still wasn't clear what that might mean. And, it, in, and although I, they tried to explain to me what it was that they were looking at that I clearly couldn't see, it would take me many years to begin to understand uh, what it was that they were seeing that I wasn't. At first, I thought the phrase must mean old and desperately plain, because that was all that I was seeing. Uh, but I, I came to understand that it, it is uh, describing the Japanese view of beauty. Uh, it describes simplicity, imperfection, and incompleteness. And this word, wabi-sabi, tries to capture that. You can hear that as a definition, but it probably still, like, what are you talking about? Celebrating incompleteness and impermanence and, and, uh, and simplicity. Probably the best example that I've come across of this thing called wabi-sabi is a, uh, a f uh, an ancient form of, uh, I would say, artistic expression that's used in pottery in Japan called kintsugi. Kintsugi is, uh, is an art form that takes broken and chipped pottery and instead of doing what we do with, with chipped and broken pottery, which means throwing it out, they, they will uh, uh, put it back together, but not in a way that hides the, the cracks and imperfections, in a way that celebrates them. So they bring together the cracks and the chips with... Uh, uh, with, with an, an adhesive mixed with a powder of either gold or silver, um, uh, some uh, expensive uh, 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 ingredients in there. And it's a way of honoring the age, honoring the wear, uh, the, even the damage of, uh, of that particular product. It, it finds beauty in the imperfection. It celebrates the scars. And as I began to understand this, it became clear to me probably why it was so difficult for me to understand, because it's so different than a Western view of beauty. So different in that uh, while uh, they would are, are honoring age, I recognize we don't, we don't honor age. We honor youth, right? We don't uh, celebrate scars. We celebrate perfection. 
We don't repair things and, and honor the, uh, the, the history of them. We take broken things and we toss them out and we replace them. And, and so it, it took me a while to get my head around this, uh, this view of, of beauty. Now, if we were just talking about different, different cultures' preferences for aesthetics, that would be um, maybe no big deal. But I think that we take this same view of beauty into how we see ourselves and how we view one another. So we don't, we, we don't, we don't celebrate cracks as, as a culture, right? We don't, we don't celebrate weakness in ourselves and we don't have much tolerance for it in one another. Shame keeps us from showing any scars or cracks. We, we like to appear strong. We like to hide our imperfections. We like to look young. We like to uh, put on a good face so that we will project something that will hide the part of ourselves that we don't want to show. And, and what often will happen is that that mindset will get in the way of the growth and the good that God wants to do in our lives. We're kicking off the new year with a new series from 2 Kings chapter 5 called Help When You Feel Helpless. And it looks at the wabi-sabi of God. It looks at how God uses our cracks and imperfections and weaknesses to show his strength and how we can receive that strength in the midst of, uh, of the, those feelings of weakness. Uh, today's passage will look at two very strong, very powerful individuals who were made to feel their weakness and two very different ways that they responded to that. And then finally, we'll look at one very weak and in the world's eyes, completely insignificant person and how she, more than anyone else, demonstrated true strength and found true strength as she looked to God and found the power that he could give. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, just a short passage. I'm going to read it uh, to you and then we'll walk through it. Uh, in the pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 289. And if you just open that up and keep that open in front of you, I'm going to walk through the passage and, and want, to, want to show you some of the, the details in the text there that really help us to understand how God can, can work in the midst of our weakness. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant. 
that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. This is the word of God. Now, I'd like to look in turn at the three main characters in this passage, and we'll start where the text starts, with Naaman. He shows us that when you're strong and see your weakness, one of the options that you can can open yourself up to is to get help. You don't have to appear strong all the time. You don't need to hide your weakness or imperfection. In fact, God can use that to open up doors of growth. When you're strong and you see your weakness, you can get help. Now, Naaman is introduced in verse 1 as the commander of the army, of the king of Syria. He's a larger-than-life figure, and if you've ever seen him portrayed in a children's Bible, he's usually like this towering figure with ripped muscles. He, he looks like Jason Momoa or, or, or Dwayne Johnson. Like he just, He's a powerful guy, and, and that's the way he's presented here. Uh, The Syrian army dominates the region during this period, and they were one of Israel's greatest enemies. Naaman is called a great man with his master and in high favor. He was the kind of person that you could count on to get things done. He was the one that you sent in on the hard missions, the one that you could count on to bring back victory, and he was recognized for it. He was held in honor. He was successful in battle as a general, but he's also called a mighty man of valor. That tells us that he's not just a great strategist, but he's worked his way up through the ranks as a warrior. He would have been one that was, that was recognized for his courage in leading the tough missions, in bringing, uh, bringing back victories where those battles seemed uh, most, uh, most difficult. Everything about him spelled strength. But strength like that can make you feel invisible, uh, make, make you feel invincible. You can string together a series of successes and start to take credit for them. You can start to think it's because you're better than other people, that that's why you had victory, that it's because of who you are and what you've done. But the text says in verse 1 that the Lord had given victory to Syria. It came through him, but it was God who had initiated it. And often when we're feeling strong and trials are far and few between, we don't think that way. We don't recognize those things. And in fact, we take credit for things that God is ultimately responsible for. A man by the name of Harold Burchette once said, God's dilemma is this, how to bless a man without ruining him. And what he meant was that so often the good that God does in our lives, the blessing that he brings in our lives, can get wrecked and warped and and corrupted so that we think that it's us. And it can get translated into pride. It can get translated into self-reliance. That good that God brings can become our downfall. And often it will take what it did for Naaman. It will take a crisis to to have us reevaluate our lives, to help us to see our lives through God's eyes. In Naaman's case, that came through a form of skin disease. 
it was considered at the time a sign of God's judgment. To have something like this would have impacted how he was able to relate to the troops, uh, how he was able to uh, carry himself in public. And it could have ended very badly for him. It, It could have ended in great frustration, in bitterness, in uh, him withdrawing and retreating from his responsibilities and from his place in society. Instead, he responded to the help that God offered him. It's interesting how God brought this help to him. He didn't bring it to him directly. A voice from God, that that might have just reaffirmed his pride and his sense of importance. Instead, God brings him help, but he brings it through a little slave girl that he's captured. It'd be difficult to take advice from your slave, especially one who was a child, one who was a young girl, one who was from the nation that you've conquered. They're the losing side. But he not only listens to her and takes advice from her, but when he goes to the king in verse 4, he tells the king that it was the girl from Israel, who had spoken to him of this healing. He, he openly credits her with uh, the direction and the, uh, and the advice. And so as you see this one way that's presented in the scripture of dealing with weakness when you're confronted with it, we're to ask ourselves, what do I do when I'm feeling my own weakness? What do I do with the... the 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 struggles that come in my own life? Do I have the humility to get help? Do I invite others in? Am I honest with God and with others about what's really going on in my life? Or is the tendency to hide the scars, to cover up the cracks, to put on the good face, instead of believing that God can use those wounds, those weaknesses, those scars for my good and for his glory. Naaman shows us that when you're strong and you see your weakness, you can get help. He's presented as one option, but there's someone else in the story who's also very strong and powerful who tells us the opposite thing to do, the wrong thing to do. He gives us a warning of how not to respond to our weakness. He shows us that when you're strong and you see your weakness, you can get mad. You can just see your life through what you were capable of doing, ignore God, ignore the help that others would provide, and just become bitter at your inability to fix it, inability to take the weakness away. When you're strong and see your weakness, you can get mad. You see this when Naaman shows up uh, to see the king of Israel. He brings this enormous gift. It's hard for us because we don't know the measures. We don't work in in silver and gold. Uh, He shows up, first of all, with 10 talents of silver. This was an incredible amount. Uh, One talent was about the, the, the weight that a person could carry in a sack. So it was about 75 pounds would be one talent. He shows up with 10 talents, so 10 sacks of silver. To give you some idea, in 1 Kings 3, King Omri buys the uh, entire area that would become his capital city of Samaria. He buys it for just two talents of silver. Naaman has showed up here for healing with 10 talents of silver. 
He's also brought along 6,000 shekels of gold, an incredible sum. Uh, in, in this day, for, uh, at this particular point in history, with just one shekel of gold, you could buy one ton of grain. So we're talking an enormous sum of money. And, and the 10 changes of clothes, he didn't just stop off at Value Village and pick something off the shelf. These, were, these would have been royal, royal uh, uh, garments that would have had, had uh, expensive uh, decorative uh, things that would have uh, symbolized wealth and status and honor. And so he shows up with, with riches un- unbelievable and, and expressing honor to the king. And the king sees that and he goes crazy. He's furious. And he goes into panic because they come not only with this uh, great uh, uh, with, with this great riches, but with a letter asking him to cure him of his leprosy. In verse 7, you see the king's response. He reads the letter, he tears his clothes, he goes into this panic, and he's angry because he assumes that the Syrian rival of his is picking a fight with him. And he's trying to, he, he was hoping to enjoy some level of peace. Notice why he gets so angry, though. It says uh, in the text, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? See, what's happening is he only sees his life through what he can do, what he can accomplish, what he is capable of, without any regard for for God, for others, for what, what God might be seeking to do in and through him. And we're left wondering, why didn't he look to the prophet? Why didn't he look to Elisha? Why didn't he? It seems that everybody else in the story has put their trust in God who anticipates that God can, can, can respond to this weakness, can, can work in this man's life. Why doesn't he even bring to mind the prophet? Interesting that a little girl who had been kidnapped by a foreign army, she believed in the prophet. It's interesting that, that Israel's enemy warrior, the, the commander of the army, he believed in the prophet. Even the Syrian king doesn't know anything about, about Israel, hasn't been raised to trust in this God. He believes in the prophet. And the only one who won't believe, who doesn't believe, is the person that we would most expect to believe. You expect that the king of Israel will believe in Israel's prophet. Doesn't even think of him. Doesn't even come to mind. He will only see his life through what he can accomplish and what he can do. Now, some of you are thinking, well, maybe you just hadn't heard of him. Maybe this uh, prophet Elisha was kind of operating in the shadows and he didn't, he, he didn't make himself known and hey, the, the, the king just hadn't heard of him yet. But that's actually not the case. We know that the prophet had already done an incredible miracle for the king in uh, 2 Kings chapter 3. That, that miracle had secured a victory in delivering Israel in the midst of a battle. So he's experienced the power of God, but like many of us, he doesn't trust in that God. 
He hasn't given himself to God. He won't humble himself before that God and invite his help and trust in his power. With humility and faith, he might have seen things so differently. He might have seen this as an opportunity for God to be glorified. He might have seen that this was going to be the means by which the king of Syria, the, the commander of their army, Israel's greatest enemy was now going to experience and see the power of the God of Israel. Didn't see that. He, he might have, through, with humility and faith, he might have recognized that this would be an opportunity for reconciliation between their two countries. Didn't see that. He might have, with humility and faith, seen this as God's intervening to bring incredible blessing and uh, a generous gift to Israel at a time when they were in desperate need of a generous gift. But because of his pride, because of his independence, he saw none of this and just felt angry and bitter, just felt frustrated. And his stubbornness challenges us to examine our own attitude before God. When you're confronted by your weakness, how do you respond? What do you do with that? Do you get help or do you just get mad? Do you see your problems in light of what you can accomplish or in light of what God can accomplish? Do you believe in God's good purposes and plan and entrust yourself to him? even if you don't understand what it's all about, even if you don't know what it is that he might be doing. Our strength becomes our liability if it will keep us from trusting ourselves to the power of God. And the king of Israel here, in this case, warns us of that. So finally, let's look at the captive Jewish slave girl. She shows us that when you're, when you're weak and you see God's strength, you can make a difference. God can paint your cracks with gold and show his strength and your weakness. He can take what we see as wear and imperfection and inadequacy and use it as his means of showing his greatness and his glory. When you're weak and you see God's strength, you can make a difference. Now in verse 2, we meet a slave girl. She's been kidnapped from her family. At this period, the Syrians had military dominance over Israel. And what that would mean was the, the king of Israel would be required to pay what was called tribute. It was like paying a, paying a tax for, for being ruled by the more powerful nation. But on top of that, the army would have free reign to make raids into uh, foreign territory whenever they saw fit. And they would collect kind of an informal tax. So they would um, come in and make a raid. They would take off livestock. They would take the harvest of grain as it came in. And they would carry off as necessary people to serve as their slaves. In one of those attacks, they kidnap a young girl from her parents. And she is described as everything that Naaman isn't. He's a mighty man while she's a little girl. He's a commander of the army while she is a captured civilian. He's held in great honor with the king. She's a slave serving his wife. And importantly, we're not even told her name. 
we know Naaman. Everybody knows the story of Naaman. But the most significant person in the story doesn't even get a mention of her name in order to tell us that in the world's eyes, she was seen as insignificant. She didn't even seem to matter. It was almost like she was invisible. And yet, God gives her all the attention. And God gives her the starring, starring role in, this, uh, in, in his plan. God loves to show his power through those whom the world doesn't recognize. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, But God chose what is fo- foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see God taking someone who was weak and insignificant, nameless and invisible in the world's eyes, and using her to carry out his purposes, using her to impact the second most powerful person in the world at that time. He delights to show his power and weakness. He loves to use below average, mediocre people to accomplish his will. D.L. Moody once said, if this world is going to be reached, I'm convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. After all, there are comparatively few people in the world who have great talents. Don't you love that? There aren't that many superstars. And, and I think that this is so countercultural that often we miss this. And so, for example, uh, it gets headlines and, and it, it's... Uh, wonderful thing, Uh, headlines when Kanye West and Justin Bieber describe some spiritual Christian conversion, and and that's wonderful. But we also need to stop and to say, it is far more likely that God will use you, whoever, any one of you, to impact and reach and change our generation than it will be that he will use either of them. And that's not to knock them, but this is just how God works. God works through small, weak, insignificant, mediocre, below average. That's that's how God works. He very seldom starts with a superstar and say, oh, that'll be my means of, of changing the world. Because he wants people to see that it is his glory. It is his power. He wants people to stand back and say, well, it couldn't have been them. Couldn't have been that person. Like, it's not like they're genius. He wants people to stand back and see, wow, that's what God can do in a person's life. That's how, that's how he is at work in our world. And so not only does he bring the change, but he will at the same time bring the hope, bring trust. Now, while the captive slave girl was insignificant in the world's eyes, her faith was remarkable. She's been kidnapped and made to serve against her will. She's been robbed of her family, her freedom, and her dignity. And so how do you expect her to respond when she hears that her master is got this terrible skin disease? This man who has kidnapped her, who has enslaved her, who has demeaned her, how do you expect her to respond when she finds out that he's been humbled and brought low? Like, she's like, finally, he's getting his, his, it's his turn now. Uh, we, we expect her to just 
be gloating and filled with, with celebration that now he's got, he gets what's coming to him. And yet, we don't see any of that. Her response is incredible. If you look at her words in verse 3, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. This isn't Stockholm Syndrome. She has genuine love and compassion and concern for him. She sees her enemy and she feels the love of God flowing through her to him. She feels compassion towards him. And this is how we're to see our employers. This is how we're to see our coworkers. This is the kind of love that Christians are called to. This is what Jesus meant when he commanded us to love our enemies and warned, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The, the point that he's making is, if, if we don't love our enemies, then what kind of love do we really have? We're, after all, following our Savior who died on the cross for people who were shouting, crucify him. And while he was dying on the cross for them, he was praying for their forgiveness. If the world is going to see and recognize that we are following him, instead of just playing religion, they're going to expect to see some, some resemblance of his love in our lives. And she shows us what it looks like. She shows us how that kind of love can be displayed in a workplace, to, to a coworker to an employer, to a neighbor. I think we can all learn from the faith of this nameless little slave girl. But what do you think she was thinking when she said he would cure him of his leprosy? What do you think was going through her mind? She couldn't have been thinking, <clears throat> God always gives us everything that he want, everything that we want, so I'm sure that God will heal him of his leprosy. Couldn't have been thinking that, right? She couldn't have been thinking that because God hadn't seemed to have answered her prayer to be rescued back out of captivity. Hadn't seemed to answer her prayer to return to her family, to get her freedom back. There were lots of prayers that she hadn't seen answered yet, surely. There isn't even any hint that she got any of this massive, big package of of wealth that went to Israel with Naaman. She hasn't profited anything from this. So she couldn't have just been thinking, oh, wow, God gives us everything we want, so if you just go to him, then it surely that's all going to work out. She also couldn't have been thinking, Naaman is just such a deserving man that God would surely reward him. Like, he was, if, if God was going to hand out awards based on our performance, like, Naaman would be at the bottom of the list. He was, he was uh, an oppressor. He was uh, one who made slaves out of people um, and probably killed off the ones that he didn't make slaves of. He was not someone who was deserving of God's grace. And so she couldn't have been thinking, wow, Naaman is just such a worthy guy, God, uh, guy that I'm sure that God will be happy to reward him with healing. So what was she thinking? How, how could she say, he'll surely heal him? 
What was going through her mind? My guess is that she was thinking it would be just like God to show the world's most powerful man how powerless he really was. And then at just that point when he felt his powerlessness to heal him, to show him where true power resides. That would be just like God. Uh, my guess is that she realized it would be just like God to take his greatest enemy and at the point of his greatest need, show him a love and a mercy and a grace that couldn't be explained, couldn't be expected, and couldn't be earned. That would be just like God. I, I believe something like that was going on in her mind and she said, go to the prophet and I think he's going to heal you. This is, just, this is how God works. This is just the kind of thing that God loves to do. And it was that kind of faith and confidence in God and his mercy that centered. That's exactly what Jesus did in dying on the cross for us. Jesus gave his life for his enemies. He died that we might have life. He died for us while we were still sinners so that by faith in him, we might receive forgiveness as a free gift. Not something that we could earn, not something that we could attain to, not as, a, not as a reward, but as his gracious gift. I don't know where you're feeling your weakness this morning. I don't know if you came here feeling like a broken vase, ready to be thrown out. But I do know that through faith in Jesus Christ, you can experience that wabi-sabi, that that act of his grace at the point of your need. It comes as we invite him in, as we show him our wounds, as we bring to him our cracks and let him shine his gold through our brokenness. We, we come away from this passage and we're reminded not to envy the strong, not to hide our weaknesses, not to pretend like we're something that we're not. Instead, we celebrate the scars and we marvel in God's grace. We let God humble us. We invite him in and we invite others in. And we're encouraged because the more in inadequate we feel, the better. If you think, boy, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if I measure up. I don't think I've got enough talent or strength or ability. Yeah, that's exactly who he's looking for. That's exactly who he uses. But he uses that person as they come to him in faith and humility, as they recognize that it's his power, not ours. Let's do that as we look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who doesn't throw us out when we get old, when we get chipped, when we get broken. I love that you heal your enemies and show grace in unexpected places. Would you deliver us from our shame? Help us not to feel like we have to be strong all the time. Give us the humility to ask for help. Help with our sin. Help with our failures. Give us eyes of faith. Eyes to see our lives the way you do. And help us not to think just in terms of what we can accomplish, but what you can accomplish. Finally, Father, help us to love our enemies. 
to live out our faith on the job and to give, to give ourselves, to step out in courage, to offer prayer for people like Naaman because we see ourselves in him. In Jesus' name, amen.